Another pot of coffee is brewing. I've been up since an absurd and awfully early hour, so I've actually lost count of the number of strong coffees I've had to drink, but it's a lot. So I may be a bit jittery by the end of the day. I've just poured myself a cup of tea to try and balance things out. So during this episode, I will probably drink with my pinky finger sticking out. A lot of things happened in the last week, which you will likely be aware of if you follow me on any of my social media channels, with the most obvious being the fact that after a lot of contemplation and a lot of work behind the scenes, not before coffee, passed the baton on to being bookish. Some of you may well have gone looking for my latest episode and wondered where I was. You may have even seen a podcast with my logo and thought that it had been borrowed by another creator. No, that was all me. I am not going to go into the ins and outs of all of it, but I do want to say that I realised, as I was putting the finishing touches on my recent Agatha Raisin episode, that if I kept on waiting to make the change, then it was possible I would never do it. Before I start my next review, I do want to reassure you that nothing else is changing. Sure, the name is different, but I am still reading, writing and hosting. I will still do my Chris Evans season in March, and I will also be reviewing films based on books every once in a while. All that means is that it's time for the next episode of Being Bookish. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, TV show marathoner, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and very honest caffeine fiend. Light the candles, get yourself a fresh cup of something hot, or a glass of something chilled, depending entirely on your preference, or on when you're listening, of course, and let's get started. This week, I have been most restrained when it comes to buying new books. Okay, so I did have five new books delivered to my front door over the space of two days, but I have been able to resist the urge for the last few to purchase more. That is despite the fact that I have seen reviews of new works on Instagram and that little voice in the back of my head that always tempts me to check out one author or another hasn't stopped. Though I've only just recovered from the biggest reader's nightmare after running out of books, namely reader's block, I have managed to read three books this week so far, and as I am currently enjoying a lovely long staycation, I have plans to make a bit of progress when it comes to my always growing to-be-read pile. The book I will be talking about this week is one I have previously read and frequently recommend to people, because it is beautifully written and the story is both moving and different. It's not the sort of book that I would normally talk about, but as I had the urge to read it this week, I felt that it would be a great one to introduce you to. I first read this book for university, a good decade and a half ago. It was part of my 20th century literature course, and if I am being honest, it's one of the only books on that course that I came away feeling positive about. You know those books that hold a tiny piece of your heart. The stories that sing to you even when you haven't picked them up for years. Paradise by Abdul Razak Gurner is, for me, one of those. It's a book about growth and love and self-discovery. And though I could never and would never claim to understand any of the experiences the characters in this book go through, the emotions it evoked in me are ones that lead me to constantly, and I mean seriously constantly, recommend it to others. 
Born in East Africa, Yusuf has few qualms about the journey he is to make. It never occurs to him to ask why he is accompanying Uncle Aziz or why the trip has been organized so suddenly and he does not think to ask when he will be returning. But the truth is that his uncle is a rich and powerful merchant and Yusuf has been pawned to him to pay his father's debts. Paradise is a rich tapestry of myth, dreams and biblical and Quranic tradition. The story of a young boy's coming of age against the backdrop of an Africa increasingly corrupted by colonialism and violence. The book tells the tale of a young Yusuf from the age of 12 into young adulthood, taking place in the early 20th century and ending as the East African campaign began in 1914. Yusuf is just 12 years old when his father sells him into servitude to pay off a debt to a merchant who, until this point, has always been just Uncle Aziz, a man who made him feel a little uneasy, someone to be avoided when he wasn't needed to help his mother in the kitchen. It turns out that Uncle Aziz is no uncle at all. He is a wealthy trader who sells goods through Africa and India as he travels from country to country. It is known by anyone who trades with him that if you are unable to pay your debts, then your children will be taken as collateral. Unfortunately for young Yusuf, his father finds himself in this situation, and though Yusuf's mother is devastated at the loss of her son, he is packed off with a small bag of belongings, never to see his family again. Upon arriving at his uncle's home, he is introduced to the shopfront that is managed by another man who was also sold into Aziz's service, Khalil. Khalil has accepted his lot, though at times he seems resentful. He is the one who teaches Yusuf about his new place in the world, correcting the younger boy's assumptions about his uncle Aziz, who is now to be referred to as Sayyid, or Master. He is also the one who reveals the real reason for his presence in this new town, so far away from home, which is not something any young boy needs to learn. Khalil is both Yusuf's guide and his tormentor, he has a long memory, but only tells the stories he wants to. All the way through the book, there are mentions of how beautiful Yusuf is, and he is constantly fighting off the often unwelcome and, un and uncomfortable advances of men and women alike. But he grows somewhat accustomed to this attention and learns, slowly, how to combat it. The novel follows Yusuf on his journey from young child to a wear adult and the events that lead to the loss of his emotional innocence. When he is first taken from his family, Yusuf is a very young 12. He is naive when it comes to the harsher realities of the world he lives in, despite growing up in a home where sometimes food is incredibly basic and very sparse. He jumps at his own shadow, and Khalil, sensing his new charge is scared and nervous, seems to take advantage of this, frightening him with tales of wolfmen who will devour him, and teasing him with the stories of an older woman who appears interested in Yusuf because he is beautiful to look at. One night, not long after he has passed into Khalil's care, wild dogs invade the space where the two boys sleep. Yusuf could hear their panting and saw their mouths widen in soundless snarls. Without premeditation or warning, his bowels opened. He cried out in surprise and saw the leading dog suddenly start. His cry woke up Khalil. Granted, on this occasion, Khalil comes to Yusuf's rescue, throwing stones and shouting until the dogs leave. But this event is held over the young boy's head and a method that is used as a tool to prove how weak he was. 
There is no accounting for the fact that he was in an unfamiliar place and had been constantly told stories of these dangerous dogs and all the things that they could do to harm him. There is this feeling that Khalil, unable to control most elements of his own life, enjoys having control over someone new to the life that he is familiar with. Yusuf is understandably unhappy with his lot. He cannot equate Khalil Sayed with the man who often came to visit his home, and he misses his family. But there is one respite for him in Aziz's home, the garden. This is the place that becomes his paradise, a place for him to find a moment of peace, surrounded by gently tended trees that are decorated with mirrors. This garden belongs to Aziz's wife, a woman who is disfigured and referred to by almost everyone in the household as crazy. Yusuf doesn't see the mistress of the house during his forays into the garden, but he is made aware that he has been seen, courtesy of Khalil. Though slavery is frowned upon and the trading of human lives is illegal, Aziz is not averse to bending laws to suit his own desires, including servitude as a way of repaying debts owed. So it's no surprise that his business dealings aren't always completely above board. Of course, like most successful businessmen, he is very rarely caught or called out on his crooked trade and therefore continues on his merry way seemingly uncaring of the pain he sometimes leaves in his wake, such as in the case of Yusuf and his parents. Time is relative in this book, so at some point between the ages of 12 and 16, Yusuf accompanies Aziz on one of his trade trips, and partway through the journey, which is lengthy and arduous, he is left with one of Aziz's associates, Hamid, his wife, Maimuna, and their three children. His role is to serve the family, help run the store, and be at their beck and call. It is during this time with Hamid that his eyes are opened to more of the world and the changes that are going on around him. He is introduced to even cruder subjects of conversation, courtesy of Kalasinga. He is taught to read the Quran, and he experiences his sexual awakening, an event that disturbs and disgusts him when he feels stirrings while near to Asha, Hamid's eldest daughter. The topic of paradise is broached several times during his time with Hamid, as Yusuf is included in conversations with the older man and his friends about the Garden of Paradise being found in India, and discussion about how such a place could have been put on earth to begin with. For a moment he believes that he has discovered paradise on earth, when Hamid takes him to a waterfall in the mountains. On the bank before the open ground he saw thick copses of banana trees, Soon he came to a waterfall and paused there to look. There was an air of secrecy and magic in the place, but its spirit was benign and reconciled. When he touched himself, his clothes were wet through, but he was happy to stand in the spray and feel it enveloping him. If he listened carefully enough, he felt sure he would hear a hum rising and falling behind the roar of the falls, the sound of the river god breathing. Despite all the things he's seen, the events he's lived through, he is still looking for and seeing the beauty in the smaller things. Unfortunately, as for everyone, innocence and pleasure cannot last. Before long, Yusuf's time with Hamid is over. With Aziz's return to the small storefront, he must leave, and his eyes are opened to even harsher and crueler experiences that highlight the sometimes horrific nature of man. On his travels, he witnesses the hopelessness of having nothing, the senseless beating of a man due to prejudice and mistrust. 
and his fears come to fruition when he wakes one night to witness a man being consumed by hyenas that invade the camp as they all lie sleeping. This book is not only about Yusuf's growth, but one that tells a tale of a country at the precipice of political and cultural shift. The Europeans have arrived, and though their presence was felt in the country for 200 years before this point, this is the moment where everyone starts to notice. Before, it was about the gold and the jewels, and as the rest of the world is in the verge of war, it's weapons and manpower that they are after. Through conversations that are both overheard and participated in, it's clear to see that class hierarchy and friction caused by religion and race have long been in place. It wasn't introduced by an invasion from outsiders. It is as though Gurner is trying to tell us that fear of the unknown and poor treatment of the different is a part of human nature. Mistrust is apparent in the interactions between characters like Kisalonga and Hamid, and Aziz and a tribal chieftain, Chatu. Chatu wants to punish Aziz for the crimes committed against his tribe by another man who traded and cheated them of their valuable ivory. Punishment is swift and brutal in the desert, and it's heartbreaking to realise that this is the life to which Yusuf grows accustomed. As I've already said, the story is set at the beginning of the 20th century, in the years leading up to the start of the First World War. And though initially the mentions of the Europeans and their incursion into East Africa are infrequent and brief, however, as the book progresses, the word almost feels as though it's being spat when it's said, and the resentment and anger these people feel is more than understandable. These people are unwanted. They have invaded, taken gold and jewels and resources. They have laid claim to land that was once free. And as the threat of war gets closer and closer to those who have been living with their own battles for survival and in existing in a way that they have always done, it is terrifying. When Yusuf returns from his adventures, it's as though he had never left. Khalil is still where he always was, and he is as reticent to share what he knows as ever. One thing has changed, though, the garden where he sought his solitude. While still maintained well by the gardener, it's now watched, and he is sought out by his disfigured mistress. Yusuf's illusion of paradise, for all that it should have been shattered by his experiences while part of Aziz's caravan, is destroyed when he discovers any belief he had that he has control over his life was fleeting. Was he allowed more freedoms than many others kept as slaves? Yes, but even this was a mere kindness on his owner's part. The book ends at a point where the story could go anywhere, and though for some this may seem frustrating, I personally love it because it gives you hope. Yusuf has a chance, but how it will end is down to the reader. This book was first published in 1994 and is considered the seminal work by Abdul Razak Gurner. However, until he won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2021, he was an author that didn't trip off the tongue when you asked for a recommendation, unless you, like me, read him as part of a degree course or encountered a book of his through a book club. The funny thing is that when I recommended this for a book club a few years ago, it was pushed back because there was just one copy of this book in the entire county. No, I am not lying. One single copy. To me, this feels criminal. 
This book needs to be read and absorbed and talked about. Lyrically beautiful, traumatic, moving and brutal in its honesty. Now that Gurner has won the Nobel Prize, I have no doubt the number of copies will increase. Luckily, I have my own, as this is a book I revisit on occasion, when I need to read something that gives me moments of melancholy and mental silence. Surprisingly, given both how prolific and talented Abdul Razak Gurner is, until this year he didn't have a publisher outside the UK. Does that mean that reviews were harder to come by? Just a little but I am going to do my best to give you an unbiased view because you have already heard a lot of mine before I even get to my personal opinion. Daniel Chaikin gave the book five stars and said, This is simply wonderful, but of course not in a way I can capture. Gurner takes us into the world of caravan trading in what is now Tanzania in southeast Africa and what was then a cultural melange a world of merchants from different parts of Africa, Arabia and India, along with the leftovers around that trade under German colonial rule. No dates, but there is an automobile and a war coming, and the traditional ways, along with all their tragedy and risk and romanticism, are coming to an end. Yusuf, whose significantly biblical name took me about 90% of the book to figure out because of the spelling, finds himself taken from his parents by a rich uncle and dumped in a shop, and then later on and off a caravan, right out of something Marco Polo might have experienced, but here westward into the very distant heart of Africa. The civilised Islamic traders dealing with isolated pagan African tribes. Except this isn't the 1300s. This is a colonial ruled territory in the 20th century. Yusuf grows up and encounters various characters and their large personalities, and expounding on their philosophies and playing their tricks and trying to manage the traditions and changes. My first time reading the new Nobel Prize winner, an LT friend sent this my way in April of 2019 after posting to me in her club read thread, if one is going to try to hook someone on an author, one must do it properly. It took me over two years and that prize to finally open it up and see what she meant. I'm anxious to read more by Gurner. There were a number of one-star reviews. However, most didn't write anything. And those that did, for the majority, were in a language other than English. And I don't want anything to get lost in translation. So I had to look at the two-star reviews and found this one by Bjorn, who stated, The blurb on the back promises a multi-layered novel with sheer poetic minimalistic language. Can't say I saw any of that. There are some really interesting themes that occasionally pop up in this novel, set in the first few decades of the 20th century in what is now Tanzania, a country that's always been a hub of trade and ideas from all over the Indian Ocean. But for the most part, it's mired in an aimless pedestrian story where most of what we know about the supposed protagonist is what others say about him, with endless descriptions of details that rarely seem to matter to the story. Disappointment. Antara Vinachandran was the middle ground and gave the book three stars. Yusuf's coming of age in East Africa is a slave for his uncle Aziz. It's his story as a young boy living a poor but loving life with his mother and father until he is inexplicably sent away with uncle Aziz, whom he is later introduced as the Sayyid, master. His life isn't uncomfortable, but it isn't free. 
What's interesting is Yusuf's understanding of freedom in the very last pages of the book, where he falls in love with one of his Sayyid's wives. His story ends on a cliffhanger. I wonder what could have happened. So then, what about paradise? Yusuf and Amina lived in what their neighbors called a paradise, a large house tended gardens with fruits and abundant food. But what of Yusuf and Amina? Could they have built their own paradise? Gurna doesn't say. I have to be honest, when I started to look for reviews, I was surprised that it has earned less than a four-star rating on Goodreads. In my view, it deserves more than that. However, reading opinions are subjective and every reader is entitled to feel what they want about a book. So now I am going to get into what I really think. Did I like the book? I know I have mentioned it before. Like many people, I am a literature graduate. Does that mean that this is my usual reading fare? Not on your Nelly. <laughs> Seriously, I am more likely to pick up a book by Kelly Armstrong or Paige Toon on the regular than I am a book that could be considered somewhat highbrow. All of that being said, this book is one that I have reread several times in the 17 years it's been on my bookcase. There is something about the writing more than the characters that makes me feel oddly calm when reading. Are there horrifically violent and disturbing acts on the page? Yes, at times there are. Does that detract from the beauty of the writing? No, it does not. All of that having been said, it's a book that you have to be in the right mindset for. This is not the one you pick up on the day when you would be happy with Harry Potter. Will I read more by Abdul Razak Gurner? All too often, I go for the easy, especially on days when I want to do nothing more than cry over a tub of Haagen-Dazs and a glass of wine. Though I do wish I had read more by Gurner, given how much I do enjoy his writing. I think that perhaps a bit of my next book token should be used to pad that part of my bookshelf out a little. And with ten published novels, the most recent, Afterlives, having been published in 2020, there are a few to choose from. In short, if you want to read something different, then go to your nearest library or bookshop and find something by Gurner. It might not be what you expected, but the writing is incredibly beautiful. This week has been an odd one. I finally reignited my reading mojo, courtesy of an old favourite that I replaced last weekend in the form of Julie Garwood's Highland Romance, Saving Grace. Sometimes you just need to follow your gut and mine was saying I needed a romance, so that's what I gave it. Since finishing Saving Grace, I have read a further two books and after I finish recording this episode, I have every intention of picking up another book from my TBR and getting stuck in. Though there is also a film streaming that I would like to watch before it departs for terrestrial TV on Easter Sunday. But there's no reason why I can't do both, right? Especially when that's what I tend to do on the regular anyway. My reading count for this month so far has not been what I wanted. But the three books I have read this week is far better than the zero it's been for the last two. So I have to be satisfied with that for now. Luckily... I now have a full week off work to look forward to and my plan is to read as much as I can and finally fully put that awful reader's block to bed. 
Does that mean I won't be doing anything else? No, of course not. I'm even getting my hair done. It just means that I will be taking full advantage of the time I have free. So check out Instagram if you want to know what I pick next. Despite always having a rather large TBR, I am always looking for books to add to it. So if you have any fiction recommendations you would love to hear me talk about or just think I'd like to read, send the author and title over to notbeforecoffeepodcast at gmail.com or DM me on Twitter or Instagram and I will definitely check them out. I'm not sure where the month has gone, but if you're listening to this, there are just 11 days until we hit May. So what books do we have to look forward to adding to our collections this week? What is bittersweet in your life? In the latest book by author Susan Cain, she analyses how embracing the feeling of bittersweet can aid personal growth and happiness. Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole, is released on the 21st of April. If you enjoyed Supper Club by Laura Williams, then her latest novel, A Tale of Capitalism and Consumerism on an Ocean Liner, might take your fancy. The appropriately titled The Odyssey also comes out on the 21st. The 27 Club has many victims, and a high proportion of them are musicians, In the latest expose by music journalist Ian Winwood, he takes a look at the truth bubbling beneath the surface of the music industry. Bodies is another book released on the 21st of April. The last few weeks have been incredibly full when it comes to new releases, so it's surprising how quiet the next few days are. If you'd like to find out more about books coming out or just want to read more spoiler-free reviews, Join the other bibliophiles and sign up to my newsletter by visiting my website. So, how are things in the coffee household this week? Have I ever mentioned before how much I hate April? I know, it's a rather arbitrary dislike, but I do have my reasons. April marks the month when my life changed so much that even 37 years later, I struggle sometimes to face it. It's at this time of year that I find the hardest memories are that much closer to the surface. April marks not only my dad's birthday, but also the anniversary of his death. And though I am not someone to post it all over social media or do those I dedicate this to the people I have lost posts, that does not mean I have forgotten. Like anyone who has lost someone they care about, the memories come at strange times. I can't watch E.T. without remembering the way that we all sat together in the cinema in the years before smoking was banned in the auditorium, my mum with a cigarette in hand and my dad smoking a rare cigar. The whole family, apart from me, crying when E.T. phoned home. Or the walk we went on when he knew that his diagnosis was terminal. Or even the day he had to give me a piggyback ride to school because the village had flooded and I didn't have any wellies that fitted. I am forever grateful that I have these memories. I just wish there were more. Yes, this mental health moment is maudlin, but occasionally I don't have an uplifting tale to tell. My dad was a laugher. He made classic dad jokes. He was the one who bought us cream cakes and told us not to tell mum that this was how he convinced us to behave when we had to go to the supermarket. 
He was useless when it came to discipline and when I wanted a treble recorder because I wanted to learn a new musical instrument. He's the one that made sure I woke up one morning to find one at the end of my bed. This afternoon, while I've been writing and editing this episode, I have been listening to what I always refer to as my inspiration playlist. One of the songs is by a duo called Ward Thomas, a song called Carry Me Home. I found it one day when I was looking for something a little different to listen to, and the song stuck with me. Normally, it doesn't make me cry, but today, as I listened to the lyrics, that's the effect it had. Yeah, we all fight different fights, but everybody feels, everybody bleeds, everybody cries. So whenever you need a friend, need a friend, call me. This week, my fight has been different, but the message is still the same. Listening to this, I was reminded of the fact that my fight is no different to anyone else's. Everyone has their own demons, whether they talk about them or bury them after knocking them out with a shovel. Sometimes it can be harder to put a brave face on things, and while that is the case for now, next week I will be stronger for going through this. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family, And please post a star rating on Good Pods, Spotify or Podchaser. And don't forget, for every review you leave on Podchaser during April, money is donated to World Central Kitchen. So every kind word to a podcaster is a good deed. You can follow me on Twitter at being underscore bookish and on Instagram at beingbookishpod. Or you can check out my website beingbookish.co.uk. Yes, it's all changed. Well, I need another cup of coffee and to pick up a new book. So until next time, this is me saying farewell. <laughs>